Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. The Final Part. Chapter 134. The Chase. Second Day. At daybreak, the three mastheads were punctually manned afresh. Do you see him? cried Ahab, after allowing a little space for the light to spread. See nothing, sir? Turn up all hands and make sail. He travels faster than I thought for. The top gallant sails, eh? They should have been kept on her all night. But no matter, tis but resting for the rush. Here be it said that this pertinacious pursuit of one particular whale continued through day into night and through night into day is a thing by no means unprecedented in the South Sea fishery. For such is the wonderful skill, prescience of experience, and invincible confidence acquired by some great natural geniuses among the Nantucket commanders, that from the simple observation of a whale when last described, they will, under certain given circumstances, pretty accurately foretell both the direction in which he will continue to swim for a time while out of sight, as well as his probable rate of progression during that period. And in these cases, somewhat as a pilot, when about losing sight of a coast, whose general trending he well knows, and which he desires shortly to return to again, but at some further point, like as this pilot stands by his compass and takes the precise bearing of the cape at present visible, in order the more certainly to hit aright the remote unseen headland eventually to be visited, so does the fisherman at his compass with the whale. For after being chased and diligently marked through several hours of daylight, then when night obscures the fish, the creature's future wake through the darkness is almost as established to the sagacious mind of the hunter as the pilot's coast is to him. So that to this hunter's wondrous skill, the proverbial evanescence of a thing writ in water, awake, is to all desired purposes well nigh as reliable as the steadfast land. And as the mighty iron leviathan of the modern railway is so familiarly known in its every pace that with watches in their hands men time his rate, as doctors that of a baby's pulse, and lightly say of it, the up train or the down train will reach such and such a spot at such and such an hour, even so, almost, there are occasions when these Nantucketers time that other leviathan of the deep according to an observed humor of his speed, and say to themselves, so many hours hence this whale will have gone 200 miles, will have about reached this or that degree of latitude or longitude. But to render this acuteness at all successful in the end, the wind and the sea must be the whaleman's allies, for of what present avail to the becalmed or windward mariner is the skill that assures him that he is exactly 93 leagues and a quarter from his port. Inferable from these statements are many collateral subtle matters touching the chase of whales. The ship tore on, leaving such a furrow in the sea as when a cannonball missent becomes a plowshare and turns up the level field. Bustle the hemp, cried Stubb, but the swift motion of the deck creeps up one's legs and tingles at the heart. The ship and I are two brave fellows. 
Ha ha, someone takes me up. They'll launch me spine-wise into the sea. For by live oaks, my spine's a keel. Ha ha, we go a gate that leaves no dust behind. There she blows! She blows! She blows! Right ahead! Was now the masthead cry. Aye, aye, cried Stubb. I knew it, you can't escape. Blow on and spit your spout, oh well. The mad fiend himself is after ye. Blow your trump, blister your lungs. Ahab will damn you off your blood as a miller dams off a water gate upon a stream. And Stubb did but speak out for well nigh all that crew. The frenzies of the chase had by this time worked them bubblingly up like old wine worked anew. Whatever pale fears and forebodings some of them might have felt before, these were not only now kept out of sight through the growing awe of Ahab, but they were broken up and on all sides routed as timid prairie hares that scatter before the bounding bison. The hand of fate had snatched all their souls, and by the stirring perils of the previous day, the rack of the past night's suspense, the fixed, unfearing, blind, reckless way in which their wild craft went plunging towards its flying mark, by all these things their hearts were bowled along. The wind that made great bellies of the sails and rushed the vessel on by arms invisible as irresistible, this seemed the symbol of that unseen agency which so enslaved them to the race. They were one man, not thirty, for as the one ship that held them all, though it was put together of all contrasting things, oak and maple and pine, wood, iron and pitch and hemp, yet all these ran into each other in the one concrete hull which shot on its way both balanced and directed by the long central keel. Even so, all the individualities of the crew, this man's valor, that man's fear, guilt, and guiltiness, all varieties were welded into oneness, and were all directed to that fatal goal which Ahab, their one lord, and Keel did point to. The rigging lived. The mastheads, like the tops of tall palms, were outspreadingly tufted with arms and legs, clinging to the spar with one hand. Some reached forth, the other with impatient wavings. Others, shading their eyes from the vivid sunlight, sat far out on the rocking yards, all the spars in full bearing of mortals, ready and ripe for their fate. Ah... How they still strove through that infinite blueness to seek out the thing that might destroy them. Why sing you not out for him if you see him, cried Ahab, when after the lapse of some minutes since the first cry no more had been heard. Sway me up, men! Ye have been deceived, not Moby Dick casts one odd jet that way and then disappears. It was even so. In their headlong er eagerness, the men had mistaken some other thing for the whale spout, as the event itself soon proved, for hardly had Ahab reached his perch, hardly was the rope belayed to its pin on the deck, when he struck the keynote to an orchestra that made the air vibrate as with the combined discharges of rifles. The triumphant halloo of thirty buckskin lungs was heard as, much nearer the ship than the place of the imaginary jet, less than a mile ahead, Moby Dick bodily burst into view. For not by any calm and indolent spoutings, not by the peaceable gush of that mystic fountain in his head did the white whale now reveal his vicinity, but by the far more wondrous phenomenon of breaching, rising with his utmost velocity from the furthest depths, the sperm whale thus booms his entire bulk into the pure element of air, and piling up a mountain of dazzling foam shows his place to the distance of seven miles and more. In those moments, the torn, enraged waves he 
shakes off seem his mane. In some cases, this breaching is his act of defiance. There she breaches! There she breaches! Was the cry as in his immeasurable bravados the white whale tossed himself salmon-like to heaven. So suddenly seen in the blue plain of the sea and relieved against the still bluer margin of the sky, the spray that he raised for the moment intolerably glittered and glared like a glacier and stood there gradually fading and fading away from its first sparkling intensity to the dim mistiness of an advancing shower in a veil. Hey, breach your last to the sun, Moby Dick, cried Ahab. Thy hour and thy harpoon are at hand. Down, down, all of ye, but one man at the fore. The boats stand by. Unmindful of the tedious rope ladders of the shrouds, the men, like shooting stars, slid to the deck by the isolated backstays and halyards, while Ahab, less startingly but still rapidly, was dropped from his perch. Lower away, he cried, so soon as he had reached his boat. A spare one rigged the afternoon previous. Mr. Sharbuck, the ship is thine. Keep away from the boats, but keep near to them. Lower all. As if to strike a quick terror in them, by this time being the first assailant himself, Moby Dick had turned and was now coming for the three crews. Ahab's boat was central, and cheering his men, he told them he would take the whale head and head. That is, pull straight up to his forehead, a not uncommon thing, for within a certain limit, such a course excludes the coming onset from the whale's sidelong vision. But ere that close limit was gained, and while yet all three boats were plain as the ship's three masts to his eye, the white whale churning himself into furious speed, almost in an instant as it were, rushing among the boats with an open jaws and a lashing tail, offered appalling battle on every side, and heedless of the irons darted at him from every boat, seemed only intent on annihilating each separate plank of which those boats were made. But skillfully maneuvered, incessantly wheeling like trained chargers in the field, the boats for a while eluded him, though at times but by a plank's breadth, while all the time Ahab's unearthly slogan tore every other cry but his own to shreds. But at last, in his untraceable evolutions, the white whale so crossed and recrossed and in a thousand ways entangled the slack of the three lines now fast to him that they foreshortened and of themselves warped the devoted boats towards the plated irons in him, though now for a moment the whale drew aside a little as if to rally for a more tremendous charge. Seizing the opportunity, Ahab first paid out more line and then was rapidly hauling and jerking in upon it again, hoping that way to disencumber it of some snarls when, lo, a sight more savage than the embattled teeth of sharks, caught and twisted, corkscrewed in the mazes of line, loose harpoons and lances with all their bristling barbs and points came flashing and dripping up to the chocks of the bows of Ahab's boat. Only one thing could be done. Seizing the boat knife, he critically reached within, through, and then, without, the rays of steel dragged in the line beyond, passed it inboard to the bowsman, and then, twice sundering the rope near the chocks, dropped the intercepted faggot of steel into the sea and was all fast again. That instant, the white whale made a sudden rush among the remaining tangles of the other lines, by so doing irresistibly dragged the more involved boats of stub and flask towards its flukes, dashing them together like two rolling husks on a surf-beaten beach, and then diving down into the sea, disappearing in a boiling maelstrom in which, for a space, the odorous cedar chips of the wrecks danced round and round like the grated nutmeg in a swiftly stirred bowl of punch. 
While the two crews were yet circling in the waters, reaching out after the revolving line tubs, oars, and other floating furniture, while a slope little flask bobbed up and down like an empty vial, twitching his legs upwards to escape the dreaded jaws of sharks, and Stubb was lustily singing out for someone to ladle him up, and while the old man's line, now parting, admitted of his pulling into the creamy pool to rescue what he could, in that wild simultaneousness of a thousand concreted perils, Ahab's yet unstricken boat seemed drawn up towards heaven by invisible wires, as, arrow-like, shooting perpendicularly from the sea, the white whale dashed his broad forehead against its bottom and sent it, turning over and over into the air till it fell again, gunwale downwards, and Ahab and his men struggled out from under it like seals from a sea-tide cave. The first uprising momentum of the whale, modifying its direction as he struck the surface, involuntarily launched him along it to a little distance from the center of the destruction he had made, and with his back to it, he now lay for a moment, slowly feeling with his flukes from side to side, and whenever a stray oar, a bit of plank, the least chip or crumb from the boats touched his skin, his tail swiftly drew back and came sideways smiting the sea. But soon, as if satisfied that his work for the time was done, he pushed his pleated forehead through the ocean and trailing after him the intertangled lines continued his leeward way at the traveler's methodic pace. As before, the attentive ship, having described the whole fight, again came bearing down to the rescue, and dropping a boat, picked up the floating mariners, tubs and oars, and whatever else could be caught at, and safely landed them on her decks. Some sprained shoulders, wrists, and ankles, livid contusion, wrenched harpoons and lances, inextricable intricacies of rope, shattered oars, planks, and all those were there, but no fatal or even serious ill seemed to have befallen anyone. As with Fadala the day before, so Ahab was now found grimly clinging to his boat's broken half, which afforded a comparatively easy float, nor did it so exhaust him as the previous day's mishap. But when he was helped to the deck, all eyes were fastened upon him, as instead of standing by himself, he still half hung upon the shoulder of Starbuck, who had thus far been the foremost to assist him. His ivory leg had been snapped off, leaving but one short, sharp splinter. Aye, aye, Starbuck. Tis sweet to lean sometimes, be the leaner who he will, and would old Ahab have leaned oftener than he has. The ferule is not stood, sir, said the carpenter, now coming up. I put good work into that leg. But no bones broken, sir, I hope, said Stubb with true concern. Hey, and all splintered to pieces, Stubb, do you see it? But even with a broken bone, old Ahab is untouched, and I account no living bone of mine one jot more me than the dead one that's lost. No white whale, nor man, nor fiend can so much as graze old Ahab in his proper and inaccessible being. Can any lead touch yonder floor, any mass scrape yonder roof, aloft there, which way? Dead to leeward, sir. Up helm, then. Pile on the sail again, shipkeepers. Down the rest of the spare boats and rig them, Mr. Starbuck, away and muster the boat's crews. Let me first help thee towards the bulwarks, sir. Ho, 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 how the splinter gores me now. A cursed fate that the unconquerable captain in the soul should have a craven mate. Sir? My body man, not thee. Give me something for a cane. There, that shriveled lance will do. Muster the men, surely I've not seen him yet. By heaven, it cannot be missing. Quick, call them all. The old man's hinted thought was true. Upon mustering the company, the Parsi was not there. The Parsi, cried Stubb. He must have been caught in. 
The black vomit wrench thee! Run all of you aloft, alo! Cabin, forecastle, find him! Not gone, not gone! But quickly they returned to him with the tidings that the Parsi was nowhere to be found. Hey, sir, said Stubb. Cut among the tangles of your line. I thought I saw him dragging under. My line! My line! Gone! Gone! What means that little word? What death knell rings in it that old Ahab shakes as if he were the belfry? The harpoon, too! Toss over the litter there! Do you see it? The forged iron men! The white whales! No! No! Blistering fool! This hand did dart it! Tis in the fish! Aloft there! Keep him nailed! Quick! All hands to the rigging of the boats! Collect the oars! Harpooners! The irons! The irons! Hoist the royals higher! A pull on all the sheets! Helm there! Steady! Steady for your life! I'll ten times girdle the unmeasured globe! Yea, and dive straight through it, but I'll slay him yet! Great God, but for one single instant show thyself! cried Starbuck. Never! Never wilt thou capture him, old man! In Jesus' name, no more of this! That's worse than devil's madness. Two days chase, twice stove to splinters, thy very leg once more snatched from under thee, thy evil shadow gone. All good angels mobbed thee with warnings. What more wouldst thou have? Shall we keep chasing this murderous fish till he swamps the last man? Shall we be dragged by him to the bottom of the sea? Shall we be towed by him to the infernal world? Oh, oh, impiety and blasphemy to hunt him more. Starbuck! Of late I've felt strangely moved to thee, ever since the hour we both saw thou knowest what, in one another's eyes. But in this matter of the whale, be the front of thy face to me as the palm of this hand, a lipless, unfeatured blank. Ahab is forever Ahab, man. This whole act's immutably decreed. T'was rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before this ocean rolled. Fool! I am the fate's lieutenant. I act under orders. Look thou, underling, that thou obeyest mine. Stand round me, men. Ye see an old man cut down to a stump, leaning on a shivered lance propped up on a lonely foot. Tis Ahab. His body's part, but Ahab's soul's a centipede that moves upon a hundred legs. I feel strained, half-stranded as ropes that tore dismasted frigates in a gale, and I may look so, but ere I break, you'll hear me crack, until you hear that, know that Ahab's hosier toes his purpose yet. Believe me, men, in the things called omens? Then laugh aloud and cry encore, for ere they drown, drowning things will twice rise to the surface, then rise again to sink forevermore. So with Moby Dick, two days he's floated, tomorrow will be the third. Amen, he'll rise once more, but only to spout his last. Do you feel brave, men? Brave! As for the fire, cried Stubb. And as mechanical, muttered Ahab. Then, as the men went forward, he muttered on. The thing's called omens. And yesterday I talked the same to Starbuck there concerning my broken boat. Ooh, how valiantly I seek to drive out of the other's hearts what's clinched so fast in mine. The Parsi! The Parsi! Gone! Gone! And he was to go before, but still was to be seen again ere I could perish. How's that? There's a riddle now might baffle all the lawyers, backed by the ghosts of the whole line of judges. Like a hawk's beak, it pecks my brain. I'll... I'll solve it, though. When dusk descended, the whale was still in sight to leeward. So once more the sail was shortened, and everything passed nearly as on the previous night. Only the sound of hammers and the hum of grindstone was heard till nearly daylight, as the men toiled by lanterns in the complete and careful rigging of the spare boats and sharpening their fresh weapons for the morrow.
Meantime, of the broken keel of Ahab's wrecked craft, the carpenter made him another leg. While still as on the night before, slouched Ahab stood fixed within his scuttle. His hid heliotrope glance, anticipatingly gone backward on its dial, set due eastward for the earliest sun. Chapter 135. The Chase. Third Day. The morning of the third day dawned fair and fresh, and once more the solitary nightman at the foremasthead was relieved by crowds of the daylight lookouts, who dotted every mast and almost every spar. Do you see him? cried Ahab, but the whale was not yet in sight. In his infallible wake, though, but follow that wake, that's all. Helm there, steady as thou goest, and hast been going. What a lovely day again, were it to be a new-made world, and made for a summer-house to the angels, and this morning the first of its throwing open to them. A fairer day could not dawn upon that world. Here's food for thought. Had Ahab time to think, but Ahab never thinks. He only feels, feels, feels. That's tingling enough for mortal man to think audacity. And God only has that right and privilege, thinking is as ought to be, a coolness and a calmness. And our poor hearts throb, and our poor brains beat too much for that. And yet, I've sometimes thought my brain was very calm, frozen calm, that old skull cracks so, like a glass in which contents turn to ice and shiver it. And still this hair is growing now, this moment growing, the heat must breed it, but no, it's like that sort of common grass that will grow anywhere, between the earthly clefts of Greenland ice or in the Vesuvius lair. How the wild winds blow it, they whip it about me as the torn shreds of split sails lash the tossed ship they cling to, a vile wind that has no doubt blown air through this prison corridors and cells, and walls of hospitals and ventilated them, and now comes blowing hither as innocent as fleeces. Out upon it, it's tainted. Were I the wind, I'd blow no more on such a wicked, miserable world. I'd crawl somewhere to a cave and slink there. And yet, tis a noble and heroic thing, the wind. Whoever conquered it, in every fight it has the last and bitterest blow. Run tilting at it, and you run but through it. Ha! A coward wind that strikes stark naked men, but will not stand to receive a single blow. Even Ahab is a braver thing, a nobler thing than that. Would now the wind but had a body with all the things that might exasperate and outrage mortal men. All these things are bodiless, but only bodiless as objects, not as agents. There's a most special, a most cunning, oh, a most malicious difference, and yet I say again and swear it now that there's something all glorious and gracious in the wind. These warm trained winds, at least, that in the clear heavens blow straight on in strong and steadfast, vigorous mildness and veer not from their mark. However the baser currents of the sea may turn and tack, the mightiest Mississippis of the land swift and swerve all about, uncertain where they go at last. And by eternal poles these same trades, that so directly blow my good ship on these trades, or something like them, something so unchangeable and full as strong blow my keeled soul along, to it, aloft there, what do you see? Nothing, sir. Nothing! And noon at hand, the doubloon goes a-picking. See the sun! Aye, aye, it must be so! I've oversailed him! How got the start? Hey, he's chasing me now, not I, him! That's bad! I might have known it too! Fool, the lines, the harpoons he's towing! Hey, hey! I have run him by last night! About, about! Come about, all of ye, but the regular lookouts! Man the braces! 
Steering as she had done, the wind had been somewhat pointed on the Pequod's quarter, so that now, being pointed in the reverse direction, the braced ship sailed hard upon the breeze as she returned the cream in her own white wake. Against the wind, he now steers for the open jaw, murmured Starbuck to himself as he coiled a new-hauled main brace upon the rail. God keep us, but already my bones feel damp within me, as from inside wet my flesh. I misdoubt me that I disobey my God in obeying him. Stand by and sway me up, cried Ahab, advancing to the hempen basket. We should meet him soon. Aye, aye, sir. And straight away Starbuck did Ahab's bidding. And once more Ahab swung on high. A whole hour now passed, gold beaten out to ages. Time itself now held long breaths with keen suspense. But at last, some three points off the weather bow, Ahab descried the spout again, and instantly from the three mastheads three shrieks went up as if the tongues of fire had voiced it. Forehead to forehead I meet thee this third time, Moby Dick. On deck there, brace sharper up! Crowder into the wind's eye! He's too far off to lower yet, Mr. Starbuck! The sails shake! Stand over that helmsman with a top maul! So, so, he travels fast that I must down! But let me up have one more good look round aloft here at the sea! There's time for that! An old, old sight, and yet somehow so young I! And not changed a wink since I first sawed a boy from the sand hills of Nantucket! The same! The the same, the same to Noah as to me. There's a soft shower to leeward. Such lovely leewardings. They must lead somewhere to something else than common land, more palmy than the palms. Leeward, the white whale goes that way. Look to windward then, the better if the bitterer were quarter. But goodbye, goodbye, old masthead. What's this? Green. Hey, tiny mosses in these warped cracks. No such green weather stains on a old Ahab's head. There's the difference now between man's old age and matters, but, hey, old mast, we both grow old together, sound in our hills, though, are we not, my ship? Hey, minus a leg, that's all. By heaven, this dead wood has the better of my life flesh every way. I can't compete with it, and I've known some ships made of dead trees outlast the lives of men made the most vital stuff of vital fathers. What's that, he said? He should still go before me, my pilot, and yet be seen again, but where? Will I have eyes at the bottom of the sea, supposing I descend those endless stairs, and all night I've been sailing from him, wherever he did sink to, hey, hey, like many more, thou toldst direful truth as touching thyself, O oh, Parsi. But Ahab, there thy shot fell short. Goodbye, masthead. Keep a good eye upon the whale, the while I'm gone. We'll talk tomorrow, nay, tonight. When the white whale lies down there, tied by head and tail. He gave the word, and still gazing round him, was steadily lowered through the cloven blue air to the deck. In due time the boats were lowered, but as standing in his shallop's stern, Ahab just hovered upon the point of descent. He waved to the mate, who held one of the tackle ropes on deck, and bade him pause. Starbuck! Sir? For the third time my soul's ship starts upon this voyage, Starbuck. Aye, sir, thou wilt have it so. Some ships sail from their ports, and forever afterwards are missing, Starbuck. Truth, sir, tis saddest truth. Some men die at ebb tide, some at low water, some at the full of the flood. And I feel now like a billow that's all one crested comb, Starbuck. I am old. Shake hands with me, man. Their hands met. Their eyes fastened. Starbuck's tears the glue. Oh, my captain, my captain, noble heart. Go not, go not. See, it's a brave man that weeps. How great the agony of that persuasion then. 
Lower away, cried Ahab, tossing the mate's arm from him. Stand by the crew. In an instant, the boat was pulled round close under the stern. The sharks, the sharks, cried a voice from the low cabin window there. Oh, master, my master, come back. But Ahab heard nothing. For his own voice was high lifted then, and the boat leapt on. Yet the voice spake true, for scarce had he pushed from the ship when numbers of sharks, seemingly rising from out of the dark waters beneath the hull, maliciously snapped at the blades of the oars every time they dipped in the water, and in this way accompanied the boat with their bites. It is a thing not uncommonly happening to the whaleboats in those swarming seas, the sharks at times apparently following them in the very same prescient way that vultures hover over the banners of marching regiments in the east. But these were the first sharks that had been observed by the Pequod since the white whale had first been descried. And whether it was that Ahab's crew were all such tiger-yellow barbarians, and therefore their flesh more musky to the senses of the sharks, a matter sometimes well known to affect them, however it was, they seemed to follow that one boat without molesting the others. Hot of wrought steel, murmured Starbuck, gazing over the side and following with his eyes the receding boat. Canst thou yet ring boldly to that sight, lowering thy keel among ravening sharks and followed by them, open-mouthed to the chase, and this the critical third day? For when three days flown together in one continuous intense pursuit, be sure the first is the morning, the second the noon, and the third the evening, and the end of the thing, be that end what it may, oh my God, what is this that shoots through me and leaves me so deadly calm, yet expectant, fixed at the top of a shutter? Future things swim before me, as in empty outlines and skeletons all the past is somehow grown dim, Mary girl. Thou fadest in pale glories behind me, boy. I seem to see but thine eyes grow wondrous blue. Strangest problems of life seem clearing, but clouds sweep between. Is my journey's end coming? My legs feel faint, like his who has footed it all day. Feel thy heart. Beats it yet? Stir thyself, Starbuck. Stave it off. Move, move. Speak aloud. Masthead there. See any boy's hand on the hill? Crazed. Aloft there. Keep the keenest eye upon the boats. Mark well the whale. Ho! Again. Drive off that hawk. See, he pecks. He tears the vein. Pointing to the red flag flying at the main truck. Ah, he soars away with it. Where's the old man now? Seest thou the sight? Oh, Ahab, shudder, shudder. The boats had not gone very far when, by a signal from the mastheads, a downward-pointed arm, Ahab knew that the whale had sounded, but intending to be near him at the next rising, he held on his way a little sideways from the vessel, the becharmed crew maintaining the profoundest silence as the head-beat waves hammered and hammered against the opposing bow. Drive, drive in your nails, O ye waves, to their uttermost heads drive them in, ye but strike a thing without a lid, and no coffin and no hearse can be mine, and hemp only can kill me, ha <laughs> ha. Suddenly the waters around them slowly swelled in broad circles, then quickly upheaved as if sideways sliding from a submerged berg of ice swiftly rising to the surface. A low rumbling sound was heard, a subterraneous hum, and then all held their breaths as bedraggled with trailing ropes and harpoons and lances a vast form shot lengthwise but obliquely from the sea, shrouded in a thin drooping veil of mist. It hovered for a moment in the rainbowed air and then fell swamped 
plumping back into the deep, crushed 30 feet upwards. The waters flashed for an instant like heaps of fountains, then brokenly sank in a shower of flakes, leaving the circling surface creamed like new milk round the marble trunk of the whale. Give way, cried Ahab to the oarsmen, and the boats darted forward to the attack. But maddened by yesterday's fresh irons that corroded in him, Moby Dick seemed combinedly possessed by all the angels that fell from heaven. The wild tears of welded tendons overspreading his broad white forehead beneath the transparent skin looked knitted together as, head-on, he came churning his tail among the boats and once more flailed them apart, spilling out the irons and lances from the two mates' boats and dashing in one inside the upper part of their bows, but leaving Ahab's almost without a scar. While Dago and Queequeg were stopping the strained planks, and as the whale swimming out from them turned and showed one entire flank as he shot by them again, at that moment a quick cry went up. Lashed round and round to the fish's back, pinioned in the turns upon turns in which during the past night the whale had reeled with the involutions of the lines round him, the half-torn body of the Parsi was seen, his sable raiment frayed to shreds, his distended eyes turned full upon old Ahab. The harpoon dropped from his hand. Be fooled! Be fooled! Drawing in a long, keen breath. Hey, Parsi! I see thee again, hey, and thou goest before, and this, this, then, is the hearse that thou didst promise, but I hold thee to the last letter of thy word. Where is the second hearse? Away, mates, to the ship! Those boats are useless now. Repair them if ye can in time and return to me. If not, Ahab is enough to die. Down, men! The first thing that but offers to jump from this boat I stand in, that thing I harpoon. Ye are not other men, but by my arms and my legs, and so obey me. Where's the whale? Gone down again! But he looked too nigh the boat, for, as if bent upon escaping with the corpse he bore, and as if the particular piece of the last encounter might have been but a stage in his leeward voyage, Moby Dick was now again steadily swimming forward, and had almost passed the ship, which had thus far been sailing in the contrary direction to him, though for the present her headway had been stopped. He seemed swimming with his utmost velocity, and now only intent upon pursuing his old straight path in the sea. Oh, Ahab, cried Starbuck, not too late, is it? Even now, the third day, to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks thee not. It is thou, thou that madly seekest him. Setting sail to the rising wind, the lonely boat was swiftly impelled to leeward by both oars and canvas. And at last, when Ahab was sliding by the vessel so near as plainly to distinguish Starbuck's face as he leaned over the rail, he hailed him to turn the vessel about and follow him, not too swiftly, at a judicious interval. Glancing upwards, he saw Tashtigo, Queequeg, and Dago eagerly mounting to the three mastheads, while the oarsmen were rocking in the two staved boats, which had just but been hoisted to the side, and were busily at work repairing them. One after the other through the portholes as he sped, he also caught flying glimpses of stub and flask, busying themselves on deck among bundles of new irons and lances. As he saw all this, as he heard the hammers in the broken boats, far other hammers seemed driving a nail into his heart. But he rallied, and now marked that the vane or flag was gone from the mainmast head. He shouted to Tashtigo, who had just gained that perch, to descend again with, for another flag and a hammer and nails, and so nail it to the mast. 
Whether fagged by three days running chase and the resistance to his swimming in the knotted hamper he bore, or whether it was some latent deceitfulness and malice in him, whichever was true, the white whale's way now began to abate, as it seemed from the boat so rapidly nearing him once more, though indeed the whale's last start had not been so long a one as before. And still, as Ahab glided over the waves, the unpitying sharks accompanied him, and so pertinaciously struck the boat, and so continuously bit at the plying oars, that the blades became jagged and crunched, and left small splinters in the sea at almost every dip. Heed them not! Those teeth but give new rowlocks to your oars! Pull on! Tis a better rest the shark's jaw than the yielding water! But at every bite, sir, the thin blades grow smaller and smaller! They will last long enough! Pull on! But who can tell, he muttered. Whether those sharks swim to feast on the whale or on Ahab. But pull on, aye! All alive now, we near him! The helm! Take the helm! Let me pass! And so saying, two of the oarsmen helped him forward to the bows of the still-flying boat. At length, as the craft was cast to one side and ran ranging along with the white whale's flank, he seemed strangely oblivious of its advance as the whale sometimes will, and Ahab was fairly within the smoky mountain mist which, thrown off from the whale's spout, curled round his great monadnock hump. He was even thus close to him, when, with body arched back and both arms lengthwise high-lifted to the poise, he darted his fierce iron and his far fiercer curse into the hated whale, as both steel and curse sank to the socket as if sucked into a morass. Moby Dick sideways writhed, spasmodically rolled his nigh flank against the bow, and without staving a hole in it, so suddenly canted the boat over that had it not been for the elevated part of the gunwale to which he then clung, Ahab would once more have been tossed into the sea. As it was, three of the oarsmen, who foreknew not the precise instant of the dart, were therefore unprepared for its effects. These were flung out, but so fell that in an instant two of them clutched the gunwale again, and rising to its level on a combing wave, hurled themselves bodily inboard again, the third man helplessly dropping astern, but still afloat and swimming. Almost simultaneously, with a mighty volition of ungraduated, instantaneous swiftness, the whale darted through the weltering sea. But when Ahab cried out to the steersman to take new turns with the line and hold it so, and commanded the crew to turn round in their seats and tow the boat up to the mark, the moment the treacherous line felt that double strain and tug, it snapped in the empty air. What breaks in me? Some sinew cracks, tis whole again, oars, oars, burst it upon him! Hearing the tremendous rush of the sea-crashing boat, the whale wheeled round to present his blank forehead at bay, but in that evolution catching sight of the nearing black hull of the ship, seemingly seeing it as the source of all his persecutions, bethinking it may be a larger and nobler foe, of a sudden he bore down upon its advancing prow, smiting his jaws amid fiery showers of foam. Ahab staggered. His hand smote his forehead. I grow blind! Hands, stretch out before me if I may yet grope my way! Is night! The whale! The ship! cried the cringing oarsman. Oars! Oars! Slope downwards in thy depths! O oh, sea, that ere forever be too late! Ahab may slide this last, last time upon his mark! I see the ship! Dash on, my men! Will ye not save my ship? But as the oarsmen violently forced their boat through the sledge-hammering seas, the before whale-smitten bow ends of two planks burst through, and in an instant almost, the temporarily disabled boat lay nearly level with the waves, its half-wading, splashing crew trying hard to stop the gap and bail out the pouring water. Meantime, for that one beholding instant, Tashtigo's masthead hammer remained suspended in his hand, 
and the red flag half wrapping him as with a plaid, then streaming itself straight out from him as his own forward-flowing heart, while Starbuck and Stubb, standing upon the bowsprit beneath, caught sight of the downcoming monster just as soon as he. The whale! The whale! Up helm! Up helm! Oh, all ye sweet powers of air, now hug me close! Let not Starbuck die, if die he must in a woman's fainting fit! Up helm, I say, ye fools! The jaw! The jaw! Is this the end of all my bursting prayers? All my lifelong fidelities? Oh, Ahab! Ahab! Lo, thy work! Steady, helmsman, steady! Nay, nay, up helm again! He turns to meet us! Oh, this unappeasable brow drives him towards us! Well, whose duty tells him he cannot depart? My God, stand by me now! Stand not by me, but stand under me, whoever you are that will not help Stub, for Stub too sticks here. I grin at thee, thou grinning whale, whoever helped Stub or kept Stub awake, but Stub's own unthinking eye. And now poor Stub goes to bed upon a mattress that is all too soft. Would that it were stuffed with brushwood, I grin at thee, thou grinning whale. Look ye, sun, moon, and stars, I call ye assassins of as good a fellow as ever spouted a ghost. For all that, I could yet wring glasses out of thee. Would ye but hand the cup? Oh, 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 thou grinning whale, but there'll be plenty of gulping soon. Why fly you not away, Hab? For me, off shoes and jacket to it. Let Stub die in his drawers, a most moldy and oversalted death, though. Cherries, cherries, cherries. Oh, flask for one red cherry ere we die. Cherries? I only wish we were where they grow. Oh, Stub, I hope my poor mother's drawn my part pay ere this. If not, few coppers will now come to her, for the voyage is up. From the ship's bows, nearly all the seamen now hung inactive, hammers, bits of plank, lances, and harpoons mechanically retained in their hands, just as they had darted from their various employments, all their enchanted eyes intent upon the whale, which from side to side, strangely vibrating his predestinating head, sent a broad band of overspreading semicircular foam before him as he rushed. Retribution, swift vengeance, eternal malice were in his whole aspect, and spite of all that mortal man could do, the solid white buttress of his forehead smote the ship's starboard bow, till men and timbers reeled. Some fell flat on their faces like dislodged trucks, the heads of the harpooners aloft shook on their bull-like necks. Through the breach they heard the waters pour as mountain torrents down a flume. The ship! The hearse! The second hearse, cried Ahab from the boat. Its wood could only be American. Diving beneath the settling ship, the whale ran quivering along its keel, but turning underwater swiftly shot to the surface again, far off the other bow, but within a few yards of Ahab's boat, where, for a time, he lay quiescent. I turn my body from the sun. What ho, Tashtigo! Let me hear thy hammer! O oh, ye three unsurrendered spires of mine! Thou uncracked keel and only god-bullied hull! Thou firm deck and haughty helm and pole-pointed prow! Death-glorious ship! Must ye then perish and without me? Am I cut off from the last fond pride of meanest shipwrecked captains? O oh, lonely death on lonely life! Oh, now I feel my topmost greatness lies in my topmost grief. Ho, ho! From all your furthest bounds pour ye now in ye bold billows of my whole forgone life, the top this one piled comber of my death. Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale. To this last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. 
Sink all coffins and hearses to one common pool, and since neither can be mine, let me then tow to pieces while still chasing thee, though tied to thee, thou damned whale. Thus I give up the spear. The harpoon was darted. The stricken whale flew forward with igniting velocity. The line ran through the grooves, ran foul. Ahab stooped to clear it. He did clear it, but the flying turn caught him round the neck, and voicelessly, as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, he was shot out of the boat ere the crew knew he was gone. Next instant, the heavy eye splice and the rope's final end flew out of the stark empty tub, knocked down an oarsman, and smiting the sea, disappeared in the depths. For an instant, the tranced boat's crew stood still, then turned. The ship! Great God, where is the ship? Soon, they through dim, bewildering mediums saw her sidelong fading phantom, as in gaseous Feta Morgana. Only the uppermost masts out of the water, while fixed by infatuation, or fidelity, or fate, to their once lofty perches, the pagan harpooners still maintained their sinking lookouts on the sea. And now, concentric circles seized the lone boat itself, and all its crew, and each floating oar, and every lance pole, and spinning, animate, and inanimate, all round and round in one vortex, carried the smallest chip of the Pequod out of sight. But as the last whelmings intermixingly poured themselves over the sunken head of the Indian at the mainmast, leaving a few inches of the erect spar yet visible, together with the long streaming yards of the flag, which calmly undulated with ironical coincidings over the destroying billows they almost touched, at that instant a red arm and a hammer hovered backwardly, uplifted in the open air in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster to the subsiding spar. A skyhawk that tauntingly had followed the main truck downwards from its natural home among the stars, pecking at the flag and incommoding Tashtigo there. This bird now chanced to intercept its broad fluttering wing between the hammer and the wood, and simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill the submerged savage beneath in his death gasp kept his hammer frozen there. And so the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. Now small fowls flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides, then all collapsed, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it had rolled five thousand years ago. Epilogue And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Job The drama's done. Why then here does anyone step forth? Because one did survive the wreck. It so chanced that after the Parsee's disappearance, I was he whom the fates ordained to take the place of Ahab's bowsman, when the bowsman assumed the vacant post, the same who, when on the last day the three men were tossed from out of the rocking boat, was dropped astern. So, floating on the margin of the ensuing scene, and in full sight of it, when the half-spent suction of the sunk ship reached me, I was then but slowly drawn towards the closing vortex. When I reached it, it had subsided to a creamy pool. Round and round then, and ever contracting towards the button-like black bubble at the axis of that slowly wheeling circle, like another Ixion I did revolve. 
till, gaining that vital center, the black bubble upward burst, and now, liberated by reason of its cunning spring, and owing to its great buoyancy, rising with great force, the coffin life buoy shot lengthwise from the sea, fell over, and floated by my side. Buoyed up by that coffin, for almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks, they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel, that in her retracing search after her missing children, only found another orphan. Thanks for listening to this final episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have any comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and mystify.